Today, on the first ever episode of The Black Goat, who are we and why are we here? Does research need to be me-search? And how do you say optimistic when everything is fucked? Hi everyone, my name is Sanjay Srivastava and welcome to The Black Goat. With me are my co-hosts, Samin Vizier. Hi, Samin. Hi, Sanjay. And Alexa Tullett. Hi, Alexa. Hi, Sanjay. So this is our first ever podcast, uh, first ever podcast episode, but also first ever podcast period. Um, And so we thought we would start by introducing ourselves and explaining why in the world we wanted to do this and what we're maybe going to do in this podcast and what it's going to be about. Uh, so, Samin, how in the world did we decide to do this? So, from my experience, the way we decided to do this was um, Sanjay and I were at SPSP this past January, and I think it was the last night of SPSP, and we were really tired, or at least I was really tired. And we are sitting at the bar, and I remember thinking, I kind of want to finish my drink, but I'm also really tired, and finally I was like, I think I'm going to go to bed. And Sanjay looks at me, and he's like staring at me. <laughs> And I'm like, oh my God, like he has something important to tell me. And he's like, well, there's this thing I've been thinking about and I'm not really sure if I should, I, I don't know, it might be crazy, but like I can't stop thinking about it. And it's been on my mind for like a month and I, I've been like start doing some research about it, but I don't really know. And I was like, oh God, San, that's it. Sanjay's leaving academia, like Yahoo offered him a job or something. And I'm like, what is it? And he's like, well, I think I want to do a podcast with you and Alexa. And I was like, cool, that sounds good. And I remember your your response right then was, Alexa totally wants to do a podcast. <laughs> yeah. So you guys had talked about this before, right? Yeah, Alexa had talked about doing one. Yeah, so I mean, that's a part of the story of why I want to do a podcast too. So I had thought about um, the idea of doing a podcast for a while. And I think for me initially, uh, the idea... Um, was planted by one of my former graduate students, Zach. Uh, So um, Zach and I were having a conversation about um, what skill of ours we thought that we could like best um, monetize or or what would be the worth the most, or what was our best skill, or something like that. We're going to make so much money off of this podcast. Yeah, it's so going to be. Yeah, this for the money. <laughs> um, but he he said that he thought that I would be good at doing a podcast, and I think that he would be really good at doing a podcast. So I was flattered by um, by him thinking that, and so I had sort of toyed with the idea for a while, and I liked um, the idea of doing this kind of. Um, talking about like science and psychology in a format that's more accessible to a broader public. Um, but I didn't like the idea of doing a uh, blog post mostly because I think Samin's is so good. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I liked the idea of doing a blog or sorry, of doing a podcast. And then when Samin mentioned that Sanjay wanted to do it, um, with the two of us, I was like, this is fate. Yeah. <laughs> and we had talked about doing something together for years. Like, I even registered a domain name, like, maybe a year or two ago, I oh, remember. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. But. Yeah, for me, podcasting was, it, it was actually kind of similar to blogging, which is, like, I listened to I listened to podcasts, and I hadn't really thought about it as something to do with, that I might do, especially related to 
what we're going to do this podcast about, which our listeners, I'm sure, are eagerly waiting to hear. <laughs> I thought it was Black Notes. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, but, uh, um, yeah, no. And so so it's sort of, it, I listened to podcasts, and then it was kind of like, hey, uh, maybe we could do this thing. And it was actually... Um, uh, very bad wizards, uh, you know, put the idea in my head that like, oh, wow, we could like, I could do a podcast about the stuff that I do. You're like, I talk as much as David Pizarro. I know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but, uh, probably more. Um, yeah. And so what, the, what are we, what are we going to be about? Can what I tell one more story? About? Sorry. Oh, absolutely. About the podcast thing. So the week after SBSB, after Sanjay said he wanted to do this, one of my research assistants who's in my lab, so he graduated from undergrad, actually the same undergrad that Dave Pizarro went to, and uh, then became a farmer, so he's a walnut farmer, but he, while he was farming, started listening to Dave Pizarro's podcast, and that made him decide that he wants to go back to school and get involved in psych research, and so now he's in my lab, and he came to my office like a week after SBSB and was like, you know, like wanting to talk to me about how to get back into psychology and get into research and then he's like, do you ever listen to podcasts? And I was thinking the only one I've ever listened to is Very Bad Wizards. Well, Serial and Very Bad Wizards. And I was like, there's no way he's going to have heard of Very Bad Wizards. So I was like, yeah, you know, sometimes. And it turned out that was what got him back into psych. So I thought that was pretty cool. So Samin's in this to inspire people to be in psychology and I'm in it for the money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm in it to make Dave Pizarro think he's like the shit, right? Um <laughs> He's like, it's like how like Andrew Gelman, you know, made me think like, oh, I could do that with blogging, and Dave Pizarro is our Andrew Gelman, although hopefully not quite as cranky. Um, so uh, yeah, so so what? I mean, I think we, in addition to sort of thinking it would be neat to do a podcast, we kind of have a set of overlapping interests, right? That made it because I immediately thought of the two of you when I when I started thinking like oh, I, it would be fun to podcast about the kinds of issues that I think about and, and you know, want to talk about. The two of you were who I thought of. And so, yeah, there's kind of a, I don't know if we know exactly what this podcast is going to be about, but there's sort of like a family of things that we have on our minds, right? Yeah, like one of the things we talked about is like life and academia and what it's like to navigate, you know, being an academic, being a researcher, uh, politics of it, things like that. So that's one part of it. I assumed that I was here to be the token social psychologist. <laughs> and the token extrovert. Yes, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> um, well, one thing that, uh, so when Samina and I first started talking about um, this before we had even thought about it in podcast format, um, we talked about the idea of doing like a, like a sort of tongue-in-cheek advice column um, which I guess we'll sort of get to when we start talking about the letters. Um, but I think one idea that was appealing to us is that um, we considered that people might have questions that they would want to ask, especially like graduate students or um, more junior researchers, um, but they might not want to ask them to their advisors, so they want, might want to ask them anonymously. Um, and then we could sort of provide like helpful slash funny answers to those questions um especially i think we were sort of envisioning questions that had to do with like ethical dilemmas in research and in academia more generally yeah yeah and then i think you know the three of us over the, over the past few years have talked a lot about sort of open science reproducibility kind of 
how psychology as a science is changing and how the sciences are changing more broadly. And that's probably, you know, we're going to be, that's our sort of later in the show today, but also I think in, in the future, that's definitely an intersection of all of our interests. So kind of, it's all meta stuff, right? It's all sort of about, it's like, you know, not the stuff that psychology learns, but how we learn it and how we do it and that kind of thing, whether it's the profession or the science or whatever. Yeah. Um, There's a term cool. that we used to use when we talked about applicability in the first few years that was scientific integrity. And I think we mm-hmm. stopped using that term because it sounds kind of self-righteous, but <laughs> I kind of <laughs> like it. <laughs> but I think it also connects like, you know, what does it mean to be a good researcher? How do you how do you navigate like being a good advisor or being a good citizen in your department or being a good journal reviewer or that kind of thing? I think there's a lot of like ethics and practical questions and when those two clash and things like that in a lot of these domains, that's kind of a common theme. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so speaking of self-righteous, um, uh, so we, <laughs> we, 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 we decided it would be a, um, maybe not a good idea, but an entertaining idea for the three of us to, uh, try to answer letters. Um, and, uh, it's sort of a funny process starting a podcast and saying, we're going to answer letters because, uh, who, who's going to send us letters. And so we browbeat, uh, people that we know, into sending us letters, and we have one. So, Alexa, do you want to tell us about what this is all about? Right, so I think I got to this a little bit early, but basically our idea was that we would um, solicit uh, letters or questions um, from uh, psychology researchers, and sort of particularly we're interested in getting letters from graduate students um, and junior faculty. And so the idea is that people can send these letters to us, and um, these letters can be sort of read anonymously, and then we'll sort of um, blab about the letters for a while. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I have, I have our first letter here, um, which I'm going to read now. So uh, the letter starts, Dear the Black Goat, Although I see my work as interesting and enjoyable, I've been wondering how important it is to feel personally invested in what you study, like if it needs to be related to a part of you or your life that you care deeply about. What I do doesn't feel like me-search. How important is it to feel personally invested in your research? Are personally relevant research topics more sustainably interesting? Sincerely, anonymous person who we brought me to submit us a letter. <laughs> Actually, she told me that she wouldn't mind being identified, so can I say who it is? No. We don't want to create social pressure. We want okay. people to... Yeah. <laughs> we can credit her at the end. <laughs> So what what do you what do you guys think? I mean, do you Samin, do you feel like your research is me search and if it is, do you feel like it has to be? I definitely don't feel like my research is me search and I think part of what has been really motivating to me about the replicability stuff and about meta science is that it feels a little bit more like me search to me than my substantive research. So I think that was something that was making me lose some of my motivation in my substantive research around the time that the replicability stuff started happening. And so for me, like the questions of like, how do we engage in good critical thinking? How do we like challenge our own biases and so on when we're doing research as scientists um, felt a lot more personally relevant to me. And it felt more like a self-improvement kind of project trying to figure out how I can be a better researcher and so on. So I really resonate with this question because I think that's part of why I've diverted some of my time from my substantive research to 
meta science questions. Um, so I, I, I don't know the answer to the question. I'd like to know too. So I'll turn it over to Alexa. <laughs> yeah, this is a question that I think about a lot actually, because so some of the research that I do deals with motivated reasoning. And so I think a lot about whether um, there are ways to um, be more objective about our own research and our own findings. Um, and of course, like, you know, because of my interest in um, replicability, I'm really like, I think a lot about how I can sort of separate myself as much as possible from um, the outcomes of my own research and also to encourage my students to have that outlook. Um, so I try like as much as possible to convey to my students that um, the outcome of their research is not what matters, but um, you know, it's their like ideas and questions and um, research practices that matter. Um, but then at the same time, sort of, if you take that line of thinking to its sort of logical conclusion, um, then we should have people who care the least about topics um, doing the research on those topics because they should be able to be the ones that are uh, the most objective um, and the least sort of invested in what the outcomes are. Um, and that doesn't seem like a satisfying solution either because um, I think it would be hard to stay motivated to research something where you weren't at least um, invested in finding answers. Um, so I think that there's some kind of idealistic middle ground where you're really curious about the outcomes, but you don't necessarily um, care which way it goes. But like I say, like I think that's idealistic, so I'm not, I'm not sure how we can stay motivated by a research idea, um, but not care how it turns out. Yeah, I, you know, I kind of feel like, you know, I wonder sometimes what version of this conversation people have in physics or biology, right? Like, if you're studying protein folding, you know, there are people that study that because it's maybe it's relevant to some disease that somebody they know had, and, and that's that, that definitely happens. But it's not that kind of, like, direct, you know, in psychology, when we joke about me-search, it's like, I study narcissism because I'm a narcissist or whatever, um, and Shut up, I de- <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to talk about politics anyway. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so now you made me lose my train. Oh, anyway, yes. <laughs> so I think, you know, it's important to be motivated and, you know, it's a really tough question, like how your motivations play into your work. Cause I think like you were saying, Alexa, they can, in a general sense, you have to be excited about the work you're doing. You have to find it to be an interesting problem. And sometimes the problem itself is sort of intrinsically interesting. I mean, I think that's, I tend to nerd out on stuff that's really sort of quantitatively intense methods because I kind of like that. So I, when I, you know, do adult development research, I am interested in sort of longitudinal methods, you know, growth curve modeling early in my career and, you know, new developments that come along. I study interpersonal perception. I like using Dave Kenny's social relations model and, you know, we're sort of developing some new stuff. So it's like it turns it into an interesting puzzle for me to solve in some ways. And I think that's a way to sustain motivation. And I think, like, you just have to look at your motivations and sort of be aware of the pros and cons, right? Because you want it to sort of sustain your interest and keep you going. And at the same time, you don't want it to lead you astray because you feel like you have to come up with a certain outcome. 
you have to, or just that you, you know, I think it's, it's tough for people that want to change the world, for example, because science is hard and science is slow and science has lots of false stops. And, you know, if you want to make something better, it can be really frustrating to find out that you're not. So in some ways, you know, not doing the MeSearch can help. But, you know, it's, I think at the end, it's a balance. I feel like we totally didn't answer that person's question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's what good was the, to get our listeners used again? to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How important is it to be personally? To, I, I feel like we answered it, right? Like, like you, medium? 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 Yeah, medium. There we go. Yerkes Dodson. It's, to, it's just all Yerkes Dodson. I do there think, I think that um, Alexa's point is really good, that finding a question that you're really passionate about the question, but not about the answer being a particular answer. So like for me, so I lied. I do think my self-knowledge research is me search, <laughs> uh, or it was. I think I've gotten kind of less attached to the this topic, but it started out for me as when I was a first year grad student, I did a study where I measured personality with peer reports and submitted the paper. And a reviewer said, uh, you should use self-reports because clearly the best measure of a person's personality is his or her self-view. Otherwise, the whole enterprise of personality seriously needs to rethink itself. And that pretty much kept me going for like five more years after that because I was like, what? Like, that's an empirical question. Is Do people know themselves better than anyone else? Like, how could just scientists say that outright that like clearly the best measure... And the reason why they were so convinced that self-reports were the best measure of personality is because otherwise the whole field would need to rethink itself. So obviously that can't be the case. So right. that gave me a lot of motivation um, for a number of years. And, but not necessarily to prove them wrong, just to say, well, that's an empirical question. Like, let's find out. Yeah. And just, just so our listeners are clear, they, they are the best method, right? So we... <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. You never have to rethink aren't. anything. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, I think cool. there's, well, one, um, there's one angle on this question that I'm curious what you guys think about, um, because I think that a lot of graduate students wonder about this, and we sort of touched on this idea of like people who want to change the world. Um, and actually, so this reminds me of a conversation that I had with Simeon and Lee Jessam actually like a few years ago um, and they were talking about um, social psychology and the history of social psychology um, and how a lot of like major areas within social psychology stemmed from um, people's like motivations to tackle social problems and maybe even also people's motivations to demonstrate social problems. Um, so for instance, like within the realm of like stereotyping and prejudice research, I think that, um, some of the people who did the earliest research on these topics, um, were invested in like seeing whether this happens and also perhaps demonstrating the negative consequences of like discrimination and prejudice. Um, and I'm curious whether you think that, like, whether you guys think that that kind of thing is allowed, um, because of course, like as a scientist, there seems to be some like personal investment in the outcome of that type of research. But at the same time, I think I feel uh, conflicted about saying we, we don't want people to enter into research areas because they are interested in enacting social change through like empirical research. So for me, that's like, um, like a question that's difficult to answer. I, I mean, I totally think people... I totally think that's legitimate, right? If you think racism is a problem, which I think all three of us do, right? But uh, um, actually, you know, like you want to use your research to figure out how to make the world, you know, a better place. 
Absolutely. I think, you know, I think that just that comes with a set of challenges that, you know, people that do that kind of work have to, to deal with. Like, you know, like I said, run, you know, you're going to run into dead ends and that's going to be frustrating. And you're going to carry certain assumptions, which I think we all do in everything we do. Um, and I, I, I think that the people that do really good work in those areas are able to sort of look at their assumptions and kind of ask themselves tough questions or sometimes back away from what seemed like a sort of, you know, I mean, when we, this is now getting way beyond the letter, right? But, you know, when we talk about bias in science, I think there's sometimes there's a, like, this has to be true. Like, it's my worldview says such and such has to be true. And then there's also a, like, gosh, I really wish this was true. Wouldn't it be great if this was true? Like, wouldn't it be great if this intervention could fix this thing? Um, and I think the people that do really good work in those areas are are aware of both of those kinds of things and, and know how to guard against them and make sure that they're doing really excellent work in spite of those being risks. And th those are that makes that more challenging to, in some ways. Like some of the things that I study, it would be I'd be perfectly satisfied with the answer, no how no matter how it comes out. Whereas if you're testing an intervention to make people better, you want the intervention to say that it made people better, whether you're talking about you know, uh, social problems or, or clinical psychology or whatever else. And, and there's never going to be a way around that. Yeah, I think where it gets really tricky is when people who then criticize those intervention studies or those paradigms that are trying to find solutions to societal problems, it's really easy to assume that they're trying to tear it down because they don't agree that we should be solving that problem or that that problem exists. Whereas I think that we should remember that actually if you're really invested in that problem, you also shouldn't want us to go down the wrong path. And so I think it's really important to remember that you might actually be critiquing that research for the same reasons that the original authors are doing that research, which is to make sure we're investing in the right solutions and the right interventions. But I think that often gets lost. Right. Yeah. So this is... Uh... <laughs> What was the letter again? Oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this this might be the topic for a for a future episode on its own, right? The sort of you know these issues of kind of managing you know bias while still doing work that has uh, a goal. But uh, yeah, so I hope that uh, um, to whoever you are, anonymous, uh, I I hope that we answered your question. Uh, um, yeah. Um, so should we should we move along to our main topic of the day? Let's do it. Yeah. All right. So uh, for the main part of the show, uh, we thought we would talk about, uh, I keep saying show, like this is a show. <laughs> it's just the three of us on <laughs> Skype talking. Um, I don't want this video uh, included. Yeah, no, there's there's no video. Uh, um, that's that's for the future. So uh, we're going to we're going to do a TV show next. It'll be great. Um, uh so the you know a topic that I think has been very relevant lately uh, is optimism in science, uh, um, and you know how do you stay optimistic when so many things are changing? Um, sometimes things that we thought were good ways of doing science, or at least were habitual ways of doing science, were sort of time-tested ways of doing science. We're now learning maybe we need to change. Um, you know, I wrote a blog post uh, with the sort of glib title of everything is fucked and yes that was a joke to the uh, you know two people on twitter who thought it wasn't um but uh um you know I it's there is a sense of <laughs> i know those two people on twitter man 
Uh, actually, if it's only two, at least I don't have like, you know, anyway, you know, Nazis <laughs> showing up in my mentions or whatever. Um, sorry, I said I wasn't going to talk about politics. Anyway. Um, yeah. So how do you stay? How do you stay optimistic or should you stay optimistic um, in the face of, you know, when it looks like everything is fucked, when it looks like things are changing, when it looks like we don't know what to do? Um, and I'm, I'm guessing, you know, most people who might listen to this uh, probably know Hi, about Mom. what's been going on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, Samin, do you want to kind of give us the two-minute background of the reproducibility crisis? I know you can condense that very quickly into two minutes. Okay, I'll do um, my best. Yes. <laughs> okay, so those of you who already know this, you might want to, like, take this bathroom break right now, but... No, for no, no. Anyone else. Um, <laughs> so basically, probably most of most people, even outside of science, have heard of a false positive. So false positive is when we thought we saw something, but actually it was just a shadow. Like you know, it wasn't actually there. It was just noise or a fluke. So like we flip a coin ten times and we get eight heads, and we think, oh my god, I have a biased coin, but actually it was just random. And so this happens in science. We see things that we think are real, but that are just flukes. And it's normal and it's inevitable. And I like to use the phrase safer science because it's like sex, where you, there's no such thing as safe science. There's no way to avoid making mistakes, but you can be more or less careful. So the only way to avoid making mistakes is abstinence. I don't want to abstain from science. I don't think other people do either. So we have to tolerate some mistakes. <laughs> um, but the problem is we might be actually making a lot more mistakes than we thought we were. Um, and some people even think that most of our findings are mistakes or false positives, and that would be really worrisome. So there's a lot of disagreement about exactly what proportion of our published findings um, are we should, should or should not be confident in. But um, this isn't completely new. So there have been arguments going around for a long time that our sample sizes, for example, in psychology and I think in a lot of other sciences, so sample sizes, the number of participants in our study, that many of our studies are just too small for us to be finding as many significant results as we do. Um, and almost everything we publish is a significant result, and that just seems implausible given the designs of our studies, the size of our samples, and so on. And then this blew up more recently for a number of reasons. One is that there was a paper published in one of our top journals claiming to find evidence of extrasensory perception using all the same methods that everyone else uses. So that was a little bit worrisome because it made it seem like, oh, well, it must be pretty easy to get false positives because look what they did. And then there were a number of teams that tried to replicate dozens of studies in social psych, and then this also happened in chemistry and in cancer biology and in economics. And over and over again, the proportion of studies that were successfully replicated was smaller than I think most people would have expected, and in many cases, like less than half. Um, so all of these signs together made us think that maybe there's something really wrong with the way we do research or the way we select which findings to publish and so on. And this isn't because scientists are bad people. We're doing our best and we're responding to a lot of pressures and incentives. Um, and, and some of it is just ignorance. Like we didn't realize some of the problems with the practices we were doing. Some of it is more structural, like that we're being rewarded for certain practices that probably aren't good for science. Um, so what's happened in the last few years is we've done a lot to try to clean up our act, especially, I think, in psychology. I think psychology has really been at the forefront of this. Um, we've developed better methods. Um, we've tried to fix some of the structural problems and how we make hiring decisions or how journals make decisions about what to publish or how we publicize our findings to the broader world. I think in general, we're just trying to take a more skeptical approach. Um, and we also started an entirely new society to, dedicated to trying to improve 
the rigor of psychological science, aptly named the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science. Um, was that was that a plug, Samine? Did you just no, plug something on our podcast? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> www.improvepsych.org. <laughs> anyway, please continue. <laughs> no, that was it. That's all I have. So yeah. So basically, things are looking kind of worse. Not maybe not fucked, but worse than we thought. And but we're also like I think really doing a lot to try to improve the way we do research and the way we um, reward researchers and so on. Yeah. Well, and, you know, on the, the fucked thing, you know, just uh, the when I wrote that syllabus, the the, you know, the joke was that everything is fucked is a conjecture to be debated. Right. It was uh, um, it was not a conclusion that you're required to reach. And I think that's really important is to and this is this is, I think, a real challenge right now is to really look in the face of all these issues that are coming up and to neither sweep them aside nor to get overwhelmed or wallow in them, right? So, you know, one of the things I would say about staying optimistic is I think there are, there are different kinds of optimism, and there are some kinds of optimism that I, I, I don't really think are particularly useful, right? So there's a kind of like, there's not really a problem here kind of optimism that, uh, you know, oh, and I, I mean, I remember four or five years ago having talking to, to colleagues who'd be like, ah, social psychology goes through this every 20 years and, you know, we'll get over it. Um, and I don't I, I, I don't see things that way. I don't think the three of us see things that way from from talking to you, too. Um, and I think there is, you know, I mean, I think there are legitimate questions about what for example, how reproducible should brand new findings be? I don't think we know an answer to that. I don't think there's a consensus on that. And I, I do think there's some room to say, like, yeah, look, some failures are not only acceptable, but they're actually, if they weren't there, it would be a problem because it would mean we're not innovating enough, right? So I think there's room for all that. But I do think there there's sometimes a kind of uh, a sort of, oh, everything's fine kind of optimism that, that tries to sort of you know, sweep things away or excuse things away. Um, I think the harder kind of optimism is to look at all those things that you described, Samin, to say, you know, we're, we haven't been powering our studies enough and we haven't been uh, rewarding people for doing sort of slow, careful science as much as for doing kind of flashy science. Um, and we, you know, we've been, you know, maybe organizing our incentives around some of, some of the wrong things, certainly not all the wrong things. Um, how do you look that in the face and still say, you know what, I'm going to get up and put my pants on and go to the office, go to the lab and, and keep doing this uh, day after day and feel good about it? I think so. One thing that um, I think about when I talk to people who don't yet know a lot about um, the reproducibility crisis and open science and things like that is that I worry that... Um, I guess me expressing skepticism or like criticism um, could be misconstrued as um, expressing pessimism. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, I think I think that I'm quite optimistic actually, and and maybe idealistic. Um, but that that is, um, I am optimistic at the same time as I'm like quite skeptical. I think, um, and so there's uh, at the beginning of. Um, 
the semester. So I, the first test that I give to my intro psych class is usually the most difficult, um, and often people do poorly on that test. Um, and one of the things that I sort of tell them, um, partly to placate them and partly because I really do think this, um, is that I think that you know the things that you have the sort of like the most faith in or you have the highest expectations of you subject to the most scrutiny or like the harshest criticism and so I feel that way um, about like the field of psychology so to me the the way that you would handle a situation where you have really high expectations for a field is um, is to be really like critical and skeptical of of that field so um, so yeah uh, sometimes I'll have conversations with people who um, they are like worried about discussions surrounding reproducibility and open science um, because they think this is going to undermine like, the reputation of our field. So if we mm -hmm. say like a lot of our findings might be false positives, um, then we are saying that like psychology shouldn't be taken seriously. And to me, it's the complete opposite, which is that if we like take ourselves seriously, we need to um, consider the possibility that um, that we may have more false positives than we want and change things accordingly. So to me, that seems like a very optimistic view. Um, but again, like, I don't think that's incompatible with skepticism and criticism. Yeah, there's, I feel like sometimes there's a sense of like, you're not on team psychology if you're not cheerleading. Right. And it's, it's hard because part of, part of our, I think part of our jobs is to be advocates for science and for psychology. Certainly, you know, this is something I wrestle with in the classroom. I'm teaching intro to psych this term. And on the one hand, you know, for a lot of students, this is their first psychology class ever. I want them to feel excited about stuff. And on, on the other hand, I want them to sort of develop that sense of skepticism. Um, and, and I want that for my colleagues as well. Uh, but yeah, I do sometimes feel that sense of like, you know, are you like, why are you bringing us all down, man? You know, yeah. <laughs> why, are, why are you such a buzzkill, Sanjay? Yeah, and, and why, why aren't you on team psychology? Yeah. Which I, think, I am. I mean, I think Alexa's points are really important that, that to love something is to be willing to criticize it, be willing to challenge yeah. it. I mean, I think, I assume that's why, Alexa, you're always telling me everything that's wrong with me, right? <laughs> no, but so I teach the next class after intro psych, I teach research methods to undergrads, and it's mostly critical thinking. And actually, speaking of not talking about politics, I've been trying to figure out how to not talk about politics in my class all quarter. And so one of the things I did is I told them that critical thinking is is easy when you don't want to believe the claim, but it's even more important when you want to believe it. And so I put up, so like, I didn't say whether I believe or don't believe this claim or want to believe it or don't believe it, but I talked about the 51% of Trump supporters believe the Bowling Green massacre is real. But then if you look at the actual item that was asked, it was a double-barreled item and so on. So I was talking about the importance of critiquing that. And I feel the same way about psychology. Like, if you love it, you should have very high expectations for it, point out when there's some, we're going down the wrong road, save ourselves from you know, the, the flaws and so on, try to, try to improve. Um, so for me, like this question of why I'm optimistic, actually when I was thinking about that, 
something happened this week that I think perfectly captures why I'm optimistic. And that was this new blog by these four German researchers. So the blog is called the 100% Confidence Interval, which I think is a great name. <laughs> um, so it's by Anne Scheel, Julia Rohr, Ruben Arslan, and Malta Elson. And I believe they're all graduate students or postdocs, or at least all early career researchers. And it's, so far they've had two posts, and it's great. And I just think it's so awesome that they have the motivation to do this. Um, you know, they already have 256 followers on Twitter. You should go follow them at the 100CI. Um, I just think it's so awesome that they're that engaged. And I think that a lot of people are listening. And I think that's another thing that makes me so optimistic is that people recognize the value of these voices. Whereas I think, you know, in the past, it would have taken, like, we, we tend to listen mostly to people later in their career. But I love that that's changing. I think that that... Um sort of considering how um, early career researchers think about these things and also noting, I think, the disproportionate interest in these um, topics amongst early career researchers um, highlights something which we may eventually talk about as like an entire episode. Um, but that is, so I think that one thing that's um, reassuring about like the optimism that we have about the field is that I think that um, we're moving more towards the way that most of us thought about psychology um, when we sort of first got into psychology. Um, and I think that's probably the time that people are the most optimistic and the most idealistic, right? So when you start out, um, like, you start out doing research in psychology, you think that you can do research that matters, and you think that you're, like, searching for truth, um, and you think that you are um, going to, like, not just sample, like, undergraduate psychologists, but you'll do more than that. And, um, and yeah, we start out very idealistic. Um, I think most, if you asked most undergraduate uh, psychology students, you know, if you were writing a science paper, would you like include all of the things that you measured? Um, and, you know, like, would you uh, report everything that you did? I think people would all say yes. And then, you know, we unlearn some of these things for practical reasons and, as you say, because of, um, because we're not aware of the negative consequences, or at least we weren't. Um, so one thing to me that makes me, I guess, more optimistic is that um, I feel less dissonance with my early career, um, just starting out in psychology, self, um, because of the things that have been changing in our field. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's been a really interesting process of like sort of as, as new new ideas, new innovations come out and and the field is actually changing and having this like these memories come up of when I was learning not to do that. And like you said, usually for practical reasons. So, you know, when I started off, there weren't electronic journals at all. You had to, you know, it was paper or nothing. When you submitted a paper, you had to print six copies of it and put it in a giant envelope oh and mail it off to the journal. <laughs> I know, I know, so fucking old. And, you know, and, and so it's like, <clears throat> you couldn't tell everything. I mean, it was, it was an absolute practical limit. You had to be economical in what you described, and so you were. And, and we had to trust people to you know, report the things that mattered and to, to use judgment. And I think for the most part, people did the best that they could, but we're human beings, and now we, have, we don't have to do that anymore. We, you know, we, and, and the field is sort of 
catching up. I think we're, you know, psychology tends to not be on the cutting edge technologically, certainly social and personality psychology, right? Like I think other fields, physics had archive for since forever and that kind of thing. But we're catching up. And, you know, I think one of the, you know, one source of optimism, like you guys have been talking about, is looking at younger people, looking at the future. Another one for me, since I'm so fucking old, <laughs> is looking at the past and looking just over the last, like, five years, which you don't have to be that old, how much things have changed, how much journal submission practices have changed, how much people are starting to use things like supplemental materials. I mean, five, six years ago, I hadn't even heard of pre-registration, or I, I might have known that, like, clinical trials, big pharma trials do something like that, but... You know, the the idea that it was something that someone who does the kind of work that I do could do just didn't didn't really exist. And now, you know, we've we, you know, we're a little late to the game, but, you know, my students have really embraced it. And so in my lab, we're pretty much everything new. So we're going to have stuff coming out of the pipe. But, you know, pretty much everything new we do, we're at least trying to pre-register when we can. And, you know, and and the rest of the world is is changing, too. And so, you know, it. Sometimes it feels tough, like, trying, you know, being in a position in my career where, you know, I have an opportunity to sometimes try to advocate for changes and, you know, people don't just do what I think they should do. <laughs> That's good. Uh, the world is a better place because it works like that. But, you know, it's frustrating when you want things to change. But then, you know, I'm like, five years is not a long time. And if I look five years back or six years back, I mean, I kind of date 2011 as sort of like, a major tipping point I think a lot of us do in, in psychology. Um, so I guess that's six years now. But man, have things changed. And that gives me a sense that like this isn't just going to be sort of like a spell of self-flagellation that goes back to normal after, you know, a little bit of turbulence. And we're really going somewhere. Yeah. Speaking of historical trends and Sanjay, you're the expert on adult development, so maybe you can tell me if this is normal. But <laughs> So when I was in college, I shaved my head. I was the president of Movement Against Homophobia, blah, blah. I was super idealistic. And my email signature was the Margaret Mead quote, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And I remember I got to grad school and like was so embarrassed. And then I like matured and I, I changed my email signature to Albert Einstein's quote, everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. Um, you know, very intellectual. And then I got older and something I tell my undergrads now is like your idealism right now, not just about science, but about life. That's right. Like I'm coming back around to that idealism. And again, like not just about science, but just the idea that what I do matters, that, that I, ha I should try to be a better person. I should try to think about the example that I'm setting, even if nobody's watching, but somebody might be watching. And I think part of what, for me, the optimism comes from realizing that everybody has a voice and that we can each make a difference. And sometimes it's really small, but a bunch of really small differences do add up. And it is the only thing that ever changes anything is a bunch of individuals deciding that they care enough to do something. So like I remember when I decided to start my blog, which is actually almost exactly three years ago, and I thought no one would pay any attention, but I just decided to do it for fun anyway. And just being shocked that it got any attention at all and just being it being so so much more rewarding than I expected it to be it mattering so much more than I expected it to and you know maybe obviously I have some privileges that might amplify that but I think that that's probably true for most people that what they do matters more than they think it does there are people watching it does influence others even if just your lab mates but 
So I think that's where the optimism comes from for me. And I don't know if that's a common life trajectory to like start out idealistic and then mm-hmm. think that you're becoming mature by being more cynical and then realize, no, actually, maybe idealism is the right attitude. Yeah, I I. I have no idea if that's going. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't know that that necessarily is. I mean, they're they're. You know. I mean, I don't. This isn't a research-based adult development mm-hmm. thing, but just you know, looking around, I think there are some people who've seen who are sort of mid-careerish people who've seen the changes and had that kind of experience. Like I can reconnect with my sort of sense of of what science can be. Um, you know, but I think there are other, there are certainly other people who kind of, it's really hard. It's really hard to just learn new things. It's hard to change practices. It's hard to like embrace the idea that something that's working for you in one sense, it's working for you professionally and you're getting feedback and praise from smart people in your field who are telling you you've been doing a good job. It's really hard to sort of look at that and, and kind of not be influenced by that. So I don't know what's the normal trajectory, um, but that that's definitely something. I mean, I think in in some ways the sort of the the you mentioned privilege and you know having those kinds of privileges being tenured. I mean, I, I don't know if it's a it's it's a it's sort of a privilege. It's I mean, it's it is what it is, right? Having status, having tenure, having all that stuff on the one hand insulates you to be able to speak out, and on the other hand, you you got that by sort of doing certain things that you were you were rewarded for. Um, in some ways, it makes it easier, right? Like, I could stop fucking publishing and probably, I hope my department head isn't listening, <laughs> I'm not going to do this, but, you know, like, <laughs> like I could, I would still have a job for maybe forever, certainly quite a while, if I just, like, really slacked off. And, and, and so I could also, that means I could, you know, not stop publishing but afford to alienate everybody. And, you know, if I, if I didn't care about what other people thought about me, um, that's the only thing holding me back, right? Like, I don't, you know, I don't count on other people in a way that obviously if you're pre-tenure, you still have to worry about. And certainly, you know, I have a lot of uh, just, you know, I feel a lot for junior scholars who I think are sort of their dilemma, right, is, you know, grad students, early career people is kind of trying to balance their idealism with all the uncertainty they see going on and, and not knowing whether they're going to be rewarded for it, punished for it, ignored for it, all of that. Um, and so, you know, I feel like us old farts have to kind of, you know, stand up for them and try to make a world in which them doing the things they want to do will be what's rewarded and, and received well and supported and all of that. Am I an old fart? Um, I'm definitely mad. Yes. I was born in the Alexa 80s, Sanjay. The... I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, Jesus Christ, you people. All right. No. I, don't, no I mean, I Alexa, totally you're, you're the, 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 most, uh, the most youthful of us uh, spring chickens, spring goats, spring black goats. Is that what we are? I mean, how, how, you know, how is that? Have you felt those kind of pressures? I mean, and you're, of course, you have a job. So you're already sort of beyond a stage that, like, grad students and postdocs and contingent faculty have to deal with but like yeah what what has that felt like for you yeah I think um I think probably I fall somewhere in between like the the experience that you're describing of feeling like um you don't really have you you can take a strong stance on these things and you're not really taking a lot of risks um and maybe the person who we're imagining who's like just starting out and really has to consider 
like balancing um, their idealism with like pragmatism, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I guess on one on the one hand, I cer- I can certainly identify with this like feeling that if you um, make all of your decisions being motivated by idealism, that you'll be handicapping yourself in some ways. Um, and you know, like I try to. Um, still maintain the idealism as much as possible um but uh, you know it becomes especially difficult when you're giving advice to like younger um psychologists um you don't want to give people advice that's going to hurt their chances of you know having a job that they can you know like being able to sustain themselves basically um but at the same time you know you don't want to sacrifice these like values that are really important um uh, but i do think like so um, this is not exactly what Samin said, but I think it's related, um, which is that I think um, we, it's easy to have a, the fear that like what you um, say doesn't matter or that I guess, um, I don't know, that, uh, that people are going to give you credit when you sort of um, talk honestly about how you feel about things. Um, and maybe this is sort of, uh, a sign of pluralistic ignorance that we sort of think that um, we might be the only ones who thinks that things should be different and everybody else seems to be like okay with how things are going um, but then when you sort of do speak up about these things you realize that there are a lot of people who care about them and feel the same way as you um, and so I think that I've had those experiences as well where um, like in instances where I was sort of like unsure about whether to be um shy about how I feel about these things or like open and honest about them those situations have never really um worked out badly for me so I don't think I've experienced like a lot of punishment for um trying to like change in the direction of um better like more idealistic science so um. yeah yeah I mean I think you know and that to me that that brings up a really important point which is like on the whole I would say I'm optimistic but I certainly, there's, you know, in a Will Fleeson kind of density distribution sense, I have a pretty big variance around that, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. I certainly have moments when, you know, and this is just how I am about everything. Like, <laughs> you know, I've, I, I have my sort of depressive cycles about everything and certainly about the work that I do. And, there, you know, I think it's it's important to recognize, too, that, like, I, I you know, at least from, you know, from my experience, like, I'm... I have those down periods and I have those times when, you know, it's just work is tough and everybody goes through that stuff, whether it's about, you know, these issues with the field or whether it's about what you work on, you know, uh, the specific issues you work on or just sort of professional development. Um, you know, I mean, do you guys have that and how do you, how do you cope with that? I think my therapist might be the most well-informed therapist about the replicability crisis. (laughs) (laughs) No, but actually, so I think we might need to wrap up and this might be a good topic to end on, which is one of the questions that we had on our agenda for today. What do you do when you feel like you can't take it anymore? You get too depressed. So I start a society. Sanjay starts a podcast. <laughs> um, I actually, I'm not joking. Like I did part of my motivation for reaching out to Brian Nozick and starting the society together. It was uh, coming from a conference and feeling like we're just going around in circles. And I'm so tired of having the same discussions over and over again. I want things to move forward. Um, but so, yeah, like, I mean, I'm not joking either about the therapy. <laughs> like, I think, you know, a lot of people on all sides of this have probably shed tears about it. And it, it is, it's, 
it's really important to many of us and really personal. Um, and I think social support is really important. And I mean, that seems like an obvious answer, but I think I would encourage people who feel like they're struggling with this, who feel like maybe they're the only ones in their department or their lab who's dealing with this to reach out. I think there's a lot of people who could resonate with that and provide support. I know I have friends who text or call me to vent about, you know, something that happened in their in their work life, but it's it's not just work, right? It is like something that we care deeply about and that is hard and sometimes feelings get hurt and so on. And I think it's really important to be able to talk about these things and provide support and also provide feedback, sometimes less supportive. <laughs> uh, but just, yeah, being able to to know that there are other people thinking about these things and struggling with these things out there too. Right, yeah. I think, so I think that, um, that SIPS is um, sort of like, feels like an oasis for um, some people. So one of the things that was like the most inspiring to me about going to the first SIPS meeting was that there were um, people in my department who basically um, didn't know that something like that exist or existed or that people were even talking about things like that. Um, and uh, I think, so like we were talking about earlier with this like feeling of dissonance with you know, your past idealistic self, you know, like, I've, I've heard a lot of graduates, uh, graduate students express those kinds of views, like, research is just not what they thought it would be. And, you know, they have to, like, sacrifice um, things that they, to them, were, like, really important about research. So, like, sacrifice their idealism, basically. Um, And I think that then realizing that there are other people who feel that way, too, and who, you know, are, trying to like change these things in concrete ways is like very um very encouraging so yeah i mean i would just reiterate that social support yeah i think finding your people is the common theme right whether it's you know twitter i think a lot of people have found people on social media i think you know something you know organized like sips uh or starting a podcast with your friends so they have to talk about it with you um and that's probably a good note we'll to send end you on bill, so yeah <laughs> <laughs> so uh i think that wraps up our first episode of the black goat um if you would like to send us a letter to be read on the show we're brand fucking new and we don't even have an email address but uh you can email any one of us or if you don't want us to know who you are uh pass it through a go-between and we'll have something in the future um uh check out our website at whatever we end up registering.com uh (laughs) and our facebook page which we'll get around to uh and thank you all for listening uh, I've uh, my name is Sanjay Srivastava. Uh, Samin Vizier and Alexa have been with me, and we'll see you next time on the Black Goat. <laughs> <laughs>